Today, I want to talk about an idea that we've spoken about briefly in the past, and I want to further develop it today. Our parsha, our parshas, it's double parsha, talk about the concept of purity and impurity, and there's many different examples of purity and impurity that are featured, but the one that takes the bulk of the parsha is the concept of tsaras. Tsaras is this leprosy, splotches that appear on the skin or even on clothing or even on the house that are indicative of some sort of sin and it has to be diagnosed by the Kohen and the person has to be sequestered and put into quarantine and the garments have to be burned and the house has to be dismantled and all the details of what we do with the Mitzvah with the individual that has this condition, what is the process of purification etc. That is the central topic of our Parsha. Now, there's a very interesting Rashi found in Parsha's Mitzorah, chapter 14, verse 34, that will raise some eyebrows. The verse is introducing the concept of tsaras, of this magical spiritual leprosy that appears not on the body, on the skin, not on the clothing, but rather on your home. And the verse says, when you come to the land of Canaan, that I am going to give you as an inheritance, I will place afflictions of Tsaras on your ancestral homes. And Rashi tells us that this is actually a good tiding. When you come to the land, you are going to be inhabiting homes that were previously occupied by the Canaanites. You're going to come and you're going to find some indigenous people. And the truth is, is that it's yours. This is the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Almighty said, it's mine and I want to give it to Abraham's descendants. And therefore, the Jewish people are going to acquire homes that were previously inhabited by the Canaanites. But these Canaanites, when they hear about the Jewish people coming... They're going to get really terrified and they're going to try to hide their valuables and their jewels and their gold and their silver in a place where the Jewish people won't get it. That's what Rashi tells us. And they're going to take their gold and they're going to remove a few stones on the wall and they're going to bury the gold behind those stones, they're going to replace the stones where they came from, replaster it up, and that way the gold will be hidden. And then what's the money going to do, says Rashi? The money is going to want you to have that gold. But how is it going to point to you where to find it? He's going to make a splotch of tsaras appear on the wall of your home, precisely at the location where the gold is hiding, and you're going to have to call the coin. And the Kohen's going to say, this is Tsaras, we're going to have to remove these stones, and when you remove the stones, you discover the gold. And therefore, the Almighty's telling you, this seems like it's an awful thing, you're going to have to dismantle your house, but don't you worry, there's something really good waiting for you once you dismantle your home. That's what Rashi tells us in verse 34 of chapter 14. Now, there's a lot of questions about this story. First of all, if you are fleeing from the Jews, you want to take your valuables with you. Why would you 
hide the valuables in a home that's going to be occupied by foreigners. Doesn't make more sense if you are the Canaanites to take the gold with you and run away to wherever you're going. That's maybe one question. It's also another question if you actually look at the text of Rashi, it seems like they were hiding it for 40 years. For the duration of the time the Jewish people are in the wilderness and they're not in Canaan, the Canaanites are already hiding all their gold behind the stones of their home. Why would they do that? So this is a problematic or at least an intriguing, shall we say, Rashi, this whole story of finding the gold behind the wall. But here's the question that I want to pose. There's a very interesting teaching in the Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, on page 71a, and the Talmud makes a list of three different mitzvos, three different commandments in the Torah, that are situations that never happened and never will happen. And the commentaries explain there's no situation, not now, not in the past, not in the future. It never happened and it's never going to happen. There's 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, but three of them are situations that have never happened. It never happened and never will happen. Only 610 mitzvahs can be actualized and implemented in this world. But these three never happened and never will happen. What are these three mitzvahs that never happen, never will happen? Says the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 71a, number one, the ben sorer umora, the wayward and rebellious son of Deuteronomy. This is the young adolescent male who steals money from his parents and buys wine and meat and consumes a very large amount of wine and meat in bad company. And the parents seize him and bring him to court, and the court initially lashes him, and then it happens again, and the court executes him. Says the Talmud, the Ben Saramar, wayward and rebellious son, who likes wine and likes meat and hangs out in bad company, never happened, never will happen. There was never an adolescent that was executed for this reason. Well, if it never happened, and never will happen, why does the Torah tell us about it? Why would the Torah give us a whole section in Deuteronomy about the way of rebellious son if it never happened and never will happen? Says the Talmud, Drosh v'kabel schar. Study it and gain reward. There's something about this story that is very rewarding. That's the first mitzvah that never happened, never will happen, featured in the Talmud. The second mitzvah, is that of Ir Hanidachas, also featured in Deuteronomy, and that is when there is a city that the entirety of the city, all of them are doing idolatry. And in that case, we have to execute everyone in the city, and we'll take the entire city, and all the possessions of all the people in the city have to be burned in the central square, and the city can never be rebuilt. Says the Talmud, this mitzvah never happened. And never will happen. There was never a Jewish city, the whole city, did idolatry and had to be destroyed in this fashion. Well, if it never happened, never will happen, why is it told to us? Why do we have a section in the Torah that tells us the mitzvah of the idolatrous city? Drosh for Kabbalah, study and get reward. There's something really rewarding about this section. And finally, tells us the Talmud, when there is a home that has tsaras on it, 
that mitzvah that we read in our parsha never happened and never will happen. There was never a home that had saras on it. Never happened. Well, if it wasn't something that we could apply practically, why did the Torah tell us this section? Why are we told all that's rust in the house? Study it and gain reward. There's something really rewarding about this mitzvah. Thus concludes the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 71a. So here's our question. In his commentary to our parsha, Rashi tells us the reason why the Almighty places Saras on the stones of our home. And the reason is because the Canaanites, they hid their gold there, and you have no idea where to find it. And the Almighty is going to make a splotch at the exact place where you need to dig, or you need to remove some stones, and then you'll remove the stones and you'll discover the gold. But wait a minute. The Talmud tells us that it actually never happened and never will happen. This mitzvah is totally theoretical. You should study it to get reward. It's very rewarding. But Rashi tells us the reason why it did happen. Rashi is talking to us as if this is not just theoretical. This is practical. There's a whole story with the Canaanites hiding their gold. How are these two teachings compatible? On one hand, we're told in Rashi the reason why it actually happened which makes no sense if it didn't happen. And then we have the Talmud telling us that, oh, no, 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 this is one of the three mitzvos of the 613 that never happened and never will happen. So the answer that I want to suggest is as follows. When the Talmud tells us that there are three mitzvos that never happened, never will happen, but you should study it because you get reward. It's a very rewarding pursuit to study Torah. And therefore, you study it even though it's not practical. It'll never happen, not in your lifetime, not in history, in the past, not in the future. These businesses will never happen. But study it anyhow, that's very rewarding. So perhaps what this means is, and this is something that the commentaries, all of them say, it's not, this is not my insight. When you study this particular mitzvah or this particular set of mitzvahs, it's rewarding because they have lessons that are applicable elsewhere. Meaning, even though these three mitzvahs, Ben Sormor, Wayward Rebellious Son, Idolatrous City, Tsaras in the House, they actually never happened, but they contain lessons that are very rewarding because those lessons are principles that can be applied elsewhere in our lives. So perhaps we could say as follows. Was there ever a Canaanite who buried his gold behind the wall? Never happened. Never will happen. But this story is part of the lesson. The story of the buried treasure, that in itself is part of the lesson. And here's the lesson. You leave Egypt and you spend 40 years in the wilderness, and you're living in tents and very temporary housing. You cross over the Jordan with Joshua. You spend seven years of war and conquest. 
and an additional seven years of dividing up the land, and finally, you are settled in your ancestral plot of land. This is where you are going to live. It took a long time, 54 years from the Exodus until you could finally settle down in your home. And finally, the itinerant nomadic life that you've had since the Exodus is over. You're home. You're in a permanent domicile. Now you can settle down. And you settle down to your home, and things are great. Until you begin to notice there's a little, I don't know, is it mold? Is it maybe leprosy that Moshe told us about? It starts to appear, these splotches, all over your house. And you call over the coin, and the coin says, I, I can't believe it, this is Saras. you got to take all the stuff out of the house, all the furniture is piled up in the front lawn. you got to move out, and you have to start dismantling your home. And the bulldozers are coming in, and your neighbors are all judging you. And now you're left out cold, in the dark. What are you going to do? Where are you going to live? You're going to rent a house? You're going to buy a new house? This is, remember, a time where people are living on their ancestral homeland. You can't just buy a new one from any other person. And what happens? As they start dismantling the home, someone starts shrieking. Someone starts squealing in delight. You won't believe what I discovered. There is an entire treasure house of gold and jewels and diamonds that are there behind the stone, behind the wall, buried by its previous inhabitants. And instantly, what you thought was the worst day of your life turned out to be the best day of your life. The disaster was transformed into a great blessing. You see how the Almighty didn't destroy your house. The Almighty gave you generational wealth. That's the story that Rashi tells us. Now, did this actually happen? The answer is no, it didn't happen. Talmud says, never happened, never will happen. But this is the lesson. When we fail, or when something terrible befalls us. Now, of course, it's important to stress. If something terrible happens to us and that's our doing, maybe that's on us. That's our fault. But sometimes the matter is not up to us. It's not under our control. But something terrible, awful, dreadful happens to us. We have a principle that whatever God does to us is for our best. Called of it Rahman, everything that God does is for our best. So who put those splotches, those proverbial splotches on your wall? Well, that's from God. And you initially think it's terrible, it's awful, it's the worst day of your life. What are you going to do? You're back to living in tents. But when you unpack the story, when you dismantle those walls, you see how it was truly a blessing in disguise. And that's the lesson. The lesson of the story of Tsaras on your home, that we have to study it, Drosh for study it because it's very rewarding. What's rewarding about it is precisely this. The lesson is that sometimes terrible things happen to us, 
and we think we're dismantling our home, and we wonder why did God do this to us, only to discover that actually the Almighty had our best interests in mind, and we would be happy to dismantle our home to discover all that gold, and what appears initially to be awful is truthfully a great blessing. Let's take this a bit further. The Talmud tells us that there are three mitzvahs that never happen, never will happen. But why is it written? Study it. It's very rewarding. What's interesting is that the question that we had about tzaras on your home can actually be asked on the other two mitzvahs, namely that of Ben Soro, Mora, the wayward and rebellious boy who gets executed, and the idolatrous city. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 72a, asks the question. I don't get it. We have this adolescent boy. He's a little mischievous. He likes to misbehave a little bit. He's a bit gluttonous. Maybe he has somewhat of an unusual desire for wine and meat. But because this kid ate some meat and drank some wine, we're going to execute him? It seems like it's ridiculous to kill someone, to execute someone. Is this capital crime? Is this a sin worthy of executing a 13-year-old boy? because he had some meat and drank some wine? Says the Talmud, the Almighty is able to predict that someone, a young boy, who has this particular constellation of characteristics, 13 years old, not too old, but not too young, stealing money from his parents, developing a bad habit of eating in bad company, and liking too much the meat and the fine wine. When this particular set of circumstances happen, the money knows for sure that he is going to develop a dependency on this kind of lifestyle. And eventually, he'll turn into a thief and a bandit and a murderer. And eventually, he will be executed for his crimes. But today, his crimes are very minor. Says the Torah, let him die innocent and not die guilty, because this kid is going to die. But the question is, is he going to die now, at the age of 13, with really no sins? Or is he going to be tried as a murderer later on in life? Says the Torah, it's better for him to die innocent than to die guilty. So the Talmud here tells us why the Torah has the mitzvah of the Ben Soromorah, of the wayward and rebellious son. And it gives us this whole persuasive reason why it has to happen. Let him die innocent and not die guilty. But wait a minute. The Talmud itself tells us that it never happened. It never will happen. It's entirely theoretical. Yet, the Talmud explains the whole reason why we have to do it. Why are we talking about the Ben Soromora as if it happened when it never happened and never will happen? The idolatrous city, the verse in Deuteronomy tells us that we have to destroy this whole city, we have to obliterate the whole city. 
Why? So that God shouldn't be angry at us. He should quell, so to speak, his anger and give us mercy and be merciful to us and increase us like he promised our forefathers. Says Rashi, whenever there is idolatry in the world, there is divine anger in the world. And again, the question can be raised. This never happened. Yet the verse talks about it as if it actually did happen. Why does Scripture treat something which is theoretical as being something which is practical? And the answer is the same answer as we suggested earlier with the episode of the Tsaras on the Home. It's something that we should study and gain reward because it contains a lesson and the story and the circumstances of this law, this theoretical law, that in itself is the lesson. So let's talk about the Ben Somora first. He's a problem child. But he's just a kid. He's mischievous. He is recalcitrant. He's disobedient. He is gluttonous. He likes to drink. He likes to eat meat. Is that so bad? Are we going to execute him for this? Says the Almighty via the Torah. I can see his future. He is going to become a murderer. And he's going to be executed anyhow. Isn't it better to kill him? To execute him? When he is innocent? Let him die innocent. Let him die free of sin. Unblemished. That's actually the goal of life. To return our soul to God in its total purity. What an amazing accomplishment. The yearning of every soul. So is the death of the Ben Soromora. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if we look at it initially, we would say it's a terrible thing. The death of a adolescent, it's awful. But we study it, we examine it, and we discover that actually everything that the mighty does is for our best. Yes, this child had to forfeit some years, but look what he got in exchange. He got something marvelous. He got the ability to return an unsullied soul to God and to bask in eternal delight in the afterlife as a result. Now again, did it happen? No. But the story and the laws of the Ben Soromar have lessons, and a lesson, just like when you discover splotches on your wall, something that Initially, looks bad is good. Similarly, over here with the story of Ben Soamora, something that looks awful, we're executing uh, apparently innocent adolescent. Well, actually, the lesson is that it's actually very good, even though it appears to be very bad. What about the sinful city, the idolatrous city? You have to destroy an entire city. Can't rebuild it. You have to destroy all its property. You have to completely obliterate this city. It sounds awful. It sounds like a terrible thing. But the verse tells us that by doing this, we can quiet the Almighty's wrath. And he will give us mercy. And he will increase us like he promised our forefathers. And Rashi again explains, whenever there is idolatry in the world, there is divine anger in the world. Now you'll notice that it doesn't say that God has anger on the city that does idolatry. 
Rather, whenever there's idolatry in the world, the entire world is subject to the Almighty's wrath. So we have a city. This city, the people made a decision to become idolaters. But the result of that is that this city is like a cancerous tumor spreading death and divine anger to the entire world. And thus, when we destroy the city and we obliterate its memory and we get rid of every remnant of that city, that is equivalent to excising a malignant cancer from the body. Now, did it happen? No, it didn't happen. But the story and the laws are rewarding. There is a lesson in all these three mitzvahs, and the lesson of all three is the same. When something happens to you, and that's the result of the handiwork of God, that's the result of the Almighty's behavior, the Almighty's decisions, it may look bad, but when you examine it really carefully, it really is a blessing. Moreover, perhaps we can suggest that these three mitzvos complement each other. When the Almighty does something that appears to be bad, the truth is that it is good, but that can manifest itself in three different ways. The first way is like Saras on the house. It's bad. You have to dismantle your house. But the truth is that instantly when you, so to speak, remove the wrapping paper of the bad, you discover the good. The bad is like disguising. It's masking the good. And you just rip it away and right away you discover that you're not really forfeiting anything. There is no bad, it's just a blessing. Sometimes, when the Almighty does something that's apparently bad, right away we discover how good it is. Sometimes it's like the Ben Soromora, where you're exchanging something minor for something major. This child is given the opportunity to die innocent, to die free of sin, to die with a clean soul, and that's the goal of life. And the bad is really good, but there is maybe somewhat of a trade-off, but it's a trade-off that's an upgrade. It's an exchange that you would gladly make. You're forfeiting a few years, but the net result is going to be the same, just much, much worse. He's going to be executed anyhow, but under much worse conditions, and therefore let him die innocent and free of sin. And sometimes this treatment of God is manifested as the case of the idolatrous city. Sometimes there's the present of something so dangerous that is metastasizing and spreading everywhere. And removal of that thing, excising that thing, is a major plus because it spares everything else. Of course, if, God forbid, someone has cancer, the thing that they're worried about most is to remove it, and the scans should all be clear, should indicate absolutely no remnant of what existed there previously. And that's a very good thing, because it means 
that the threat has been neutralized. So how do we respond when something bad happens to us? Of course, when disappointment strikes, it may sting, it may be very painful, it may make us not want to live anymore, maybe that awful, and we don't see at all any glimmer of hope, we don't see any silver lining, it's just awful, miserable, painful suffering. And the question that we're likely to ask is, why did God do this to us? And of course, this is not a challenge that we hope to face, and we don't hope that anyone has to face this question. But there are three mitzvos that never happened and never will happen. And each one of them is a different version of the same idea, and that is that when God does something to us, it is for our benefit. The Talmud tells us that we have to bless God and thank God when something terrible happens with the same joy as we bless God when something wonderful happens to, to us. It may appear to us to be terrible, disappointing, harmful, excruciatingly painful, but we know and we're comforted by the fact that from God's perspective, it is totally good. And yes, we're often not equipped with the ability to witness that. And we don't have the same frame of mind, frame of references that the Almighty does. But perhaps there is a little bit of comfort to know that when something appears to us as being awful, we know that from God's perspective, it's totally good, and it could be good in different ways, and that is a rewarding thought to have in mind, that the Almighty loves us, takes care of us, wants our benefit and betterment, and will never do anything to harm us. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. Answers and questions. And here's the question. Over the course of Leviticus, we see a few times the concept of different tiers of sacrifices. Someone needs to bring a sacrifice, but the level of sacrifice depends on their means. Call it a progressive system of sacrifices. In our Parsha, we have two examples of this phenomenon, one in Parsha's Tazria and one in Mitzorah. So Parshas Tazria begins with a woman that gives birth. And after her period of purity, so 40 days if she has a male, 80 days if she has a female, she must bring two sacrifices. One an Ola, an elevation offering, and one a Chattas, a sin offering. Now the Chattas is a dove or a turtle dove, and that is consistent and steady regardless of the woman's means. Whereas the Ola, the elevation offering, it depends. If she's wealthy, she brings a sheep. If she's poor, she brings a dove or a turtle dove. So again, if she's rich, she brings a sheep as an Ola, as an elevation offering, and a bird, a dove or a turtle dove, as a chatas, as a sin offering. Whereas if she's poor, she brings two birds, both sacrifices are cheaper, she has to bring just a bird. That's the first example of this phenomenon of Parsha, different tiers of sacrifices. 
The second example is the Mitzorah on day eight of the purification process. And the verse tells us that if the Mitzorah is wealthy, then he brings two male lambs and one you plus some other things. Whereas if the Mitzorah is poor, it's only one lamb and two birds instead of two bigger, more expensive animals plus some other things as the sacrifices. So here's the question. If you look both at the purification of a woman that just gave birth and the purification of a Mitzorah, both of them end with a recap. This is the Torah. This is the law. Once it finishes the delineation of the purification process, it says, okay, wraps it up. This is the law of a woman who gives birth. This is the law of a Mitzorah who becomes pure. But if you compare them, they are very different. In chapter 12, verse 7, it talks about a woman who gives birth and has a baby and brings the sacrifice. And it concludes, verse 7, Zos Torah Hayolades, this is the Torah, this is the law of a woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. And the next verse, after it apparently wraps it all up, it says, well, what if she's poor and she can't afford to bring a sheep as the elevation offering, then she brings two birds. Whereas by the Mitzorah, it only gives the encapsulatory verse, Zos Torah, this is the Torah, after describing the sacrifice of the poor Mitzorah. So verse 10 to 20 of chapter 14 talks about the wealthy Mitzorah. And verse 21 to 31 of chapter 14 talks about the poor Mitzorah. And the next verse, verse 32 Zos Torah and Mitzorah, this is the law, this is the Torah of the Mitzorah. Whereas the encapsulatory verse by a woman who gives birth is told after the process of the sacrifices of a rich woman and before it wraps up the entire story and tells us the sacrifices of a poor woman who gave birth. And the question is, what's the difference? Why? Does scripture not tell us, Zos Torah, this is the Torah, the, the verse that apparently wraps up the entire section, it should say it more naturally after the description of the poor woman's sacrifice, not in between the description of the rich woman's sacrifice and the poor woman's sacrifice. It's a little bit of a tough and complicated question, but look at the verses and you'll see and it's kind of obvious. If you have an answer, Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now, last week, we asked the question as to why the laws of kosher were given in a show-and-tell fashion. Why did the Almighty show Moshe, not tell Moshe, which animals are kosher? And when Moshe conveyed that to the Jewish people, he too lifted every animal. This is kosher. This is not kosher. He didn't make a list. In fact, he gives us the criteria, split hooves, rechoose its cud, and that's apparently not enough. He doesn't make a list of the animals. He makes a visual demonstration. So I thought this was a very difficult question, but I want to share with y'all an incredible Kabbalistic piece that I saw. And as uh, longtime listeners know, I don't pretend to know anything about Kabbalah, and I freely admit that, 
but I could read. And I read something and it kind of blew my mind. So I want to read it and share it with y'all. So this is a piece from the Ben Yehoyada, who wrote the Ben Eshchai. And he asks this same question. And he says, I want to give you an answer based upon the Arizal. Of course, Arizal is the greatest of the Kabbalists. And he says that the Arizal, all the way in his commentary back on Genesis, gives us an idea that can be transplanted to this concept of Moshe doing show and tell. The Rizal says that in Genesis, Adam gave names to all the animals. And the idea behind it is as follows. An animal is a mixture of good and bad. It has some good parts of it. It has what the Kabbalists call the klipa, the bad parts of it. And Adam, when he was naming the animals, he was fixing them. Meaning, he was separating the good from the bad. And therefore, Adam was not allowed to eat meat because the reason why we eat meat is to separate the good from the bad and the good parts of the animal we absorb within us and thus we've elevated the good and the bad parts we remove and thus we've separated the good from the bad and that is the way that we take the animal and we allow it to achieve its perfection. Adam, because he named the animals, the naming of the Adam's naming wasn't just some arbitrary name. It was on a very Kabbalistic level. By naming the animals, he was perfecting them. He was separating the good from the bad. And thus, it was improper for him to eat the animals because the only reason why you would eat the animals is to bring the animals towards their perfection. And these animals were perfect because Adam had already named them and thus separated the good from the evil, from the bad, from the harmful, and thus arrived at the end game for each of the animals. But what happened with the passing of the generations? This is again the Ben Yehoyada quoting the Arizal. People began to sin and the separation, shall we say, of man and beast, of good and bad, got a little bit blurred. And once again, the good and the bad in the animals became interwoven again. And therefore, there was a need to permit, by the times of Noah, when once Noah arrives, to permit humans to eat meat, to thereby facilitate the uplifting of the animals to their destiny. Now, what this means, I have no idea, but he does drop a hint that makes me think that I do know what he's talking about, namely that Adam, before Adam's sin, was complete and total holiness. Once he sinned, part of that holiness was scattered throughout the world and it became, so to speak, embedded in the animals. And therefore, Adam had to kind of recoup 
that holiness and he did it by naming the animals. But our collective mission is to, again, recoup that holiness. And we do that by consuming the animals and thereby we absorb the parts that were, so to speak, the holiness that we were supposed to have or that humanity was supposed to have. And now we've readopted it, reabsorbed it. But Noah was only able to actually reabsorb the latent holiness of the animals by certain animals, namely the kosher animals, who have more holiness than impurity. But by the non-kosher animals, it's not possible for us to separate the good from the bad, and therefore we're told not to eat it. That's what the Arizal says. And on top of that, says the Benishchai as follows. Adam, simply by naming the animals, he was able to fetch them and separate the good from the bad. What would have happened if God himself named the animals? Or if Moshe, who was like Adam before his sin, actually uttered the names of the animals? That would have accomplished the identical goal that Adam accomplished. He would have separated the good from the bad and the animals would have achieved their purpose and then we would not be allowed to eat from them. And the Almighty wanted us to elevate the animals ourselves and not via this other process that Adam did and that would have resulted had God or even Moshe enumerated the names of the animals. And therefore in telling us, revealing to us which are the animals that have more holiness than impurity within them, it was a process of show and tell. There was no naming of the animals. Yes, subsequently Moshe wrote them, but he never uttered those words. Because had he done that, there would have been this purification and rectification and separation of good from bad that would have resulted in the identical process that happened to Adam, and we would not be allowed to eat the meat because all the animals would have achieved their purpose. That's what he says. Does this make sense to me? I kind of hear what he's saying. It's still a little baffling. It's very Kabbalistic. But I figured if y'all listened all the way to the end of the podcast, you deserve a treat. So I'll share that with you. And once again, as always, I don't claim to be an expert. I don't really know what this means. But I thought it was interesting, and I hope you enjoyed. And thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. I'm coming to you from the Torch Center in rainy Houston, Texas. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your week. Have a fantastic and wonderful and splendid Shabbos. And please, God, we will talk again next week.